This Week in Retronauts, Total Crap. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode, oh, uh, I think this is 82 of Retronauts, and uh, I apologize if that does not line up with the number that you see in your iTunes, because it's not my fault. I'm just making a guess here. Uh, hello, I'm Jeremy Parrish. I'm hosting this week. You may recognize my voice if you are a regular listener, and this week I've got people who aren't Bob in the studio, because Bob is maybe dying somewhere. It's really, it's sad. Um, I mean, that's literally true. Yeah, he could be. You never know. I mean, actually, everyone all, is, is dying. dying. Yes. Yeah, we're dying in this room. That's right, exactly. Um, and it's not just because of our bad comedy. So who do I have here with me this week as we talk about things that are total crap? Uh, so I'm Frank Cifaldi, and I, I think I'm here because I shipped a bad game. <laughs> that's that's actually not why I invited you, but sure, oh. sure, yes. You can, you can be our um, man in the field. Okay. Share with us the experience of making a bad video game. I, I totally will. What, what what bad video game was that? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't bad bad, but uh, I, I would say Sharknado the video game is 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 a long is sort of a modern equivalent of a lot of the. Games I guess so, but I mean, at the same here. time, like I remember when you were working on that game, and there was a certain element of pride and satisfaction in it too. Yeah, because like all of my dumb ideas made it. In, yeah, but so it was also a two month project that right. was budgeted at about half of what it should have been. Mm. Yeah, you seem super thrilled to be working on that on that at the time. Yeah, I made a really dumb game. I'm so proud of it, but it's also <laughs> a bad game. And we, you know, it's I don't know. It's a Sharknado game. It's supposed to be bad, right? I feel like it hit on point. But I, I, I the point is that uh, you know I, I have some some personal insight into uh, how I would imagine a lot of these games went down. Hmm. And who was that? Whose voice we just heard? This is uh, Doctor Sparkle of the Crontendo series and. I'm the guy, for some reason, who's playing every single NES and Famicom game in chronological order. That's right. And you're now 750 games into that project. So... Is that true? You've done 50 episodes with 15 games Oh, yeah. You're you're, you're probably right. So, yeah. So you have played most of the games that are are kind of the, the milieu of this podcast. I mean, by the time... You're what, up to like 1989 now? Late 89, yeah. Yeah, so by that point, most of the bad Japanese stuff had been winnowed out. And now it was it was kind of moving more toward bad American and European stuff. Uh, episode 50, the last one, was pretty much all bad games. Mm. So I, Okay, bad in a different sense. Like the, the stuff I'm thinking of is more like Convoy no Nazo, that kind of thing. Yeah, where the, it's just like, how do you make video games? Right, the, these guys were... Didn't really know what they were doing. It was sort of like a a new a new medium in some sense to them. Mm-hmm. So they were exploring and often failing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like '89 in Japan is is about when there's a video game industry as opposed to a toy industry that makes video games. And that actually kind of ties into the nature of a lot of the companies that are that are going to be covered to some degree in this episode. But yeah, so so. The uh, the topic of this episode specifically is, I, I put dreadful Famicom boom era developers. That's not really entirely fair, but the 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 topic is really meant to explore 
all these like little companies that made video games in the mid to late 80s in Japan that you know emerged in response to the popularity of Nintendo's family computer and then kind of for the most part vanished pretty quickly they made some games they mostly were not good games and then they went away it's a i guess you know every generation has that but um i i personally have a fascination with a lot of these companies because a lot of them survived long enough to make a Game Boy game or two, so I've been stumbling across them uh, in the course of doing the Game Boy World project, and I'm like, what the hell is an Atelier Double? So <laughs> then I start, you know, reading up on these companies, and I'm like, oh, they made some other really crummy games that I've I've heard of, or you know, know by reputation or know by having watched Crontendo. So it, it it's kind of this continuity of um, of mediocrity and. <laughs> You know, not every company making video games back in the 80s was a Nintendo or a Konami or a Capcom. In fact, very few of those companies were a Nintendo or Konami and Capcom. That's why we elevate those, you know, those three companies, those kind of rare and exceptional developers and publishers because they made things that were really great. Like for whatever reason, their their people grasped the ins and outs not only of good game design, which they sort of had to intuit and create from scratch because that was still being defined, but also how to make that work and express that within the limitations of the NES, which was not a very capable machine. I mean, by the standards of 1983, sure, but the standards of 1989, maybe not so much. Yeah, and, so, uh, you know, I might be mistaken also, but I feel like uh, at least in this era, Nintendo Japan didn't have the uh, as, as strict... Of a, of a publishing policy as Nintendo of America, although I do know they had one. Like, you had to be a licensed uh, publisher for the family. Yeah. They went after those guys who were unlicensed, like all those guys making those... Like Hacker. Poor, yeah, yeah, all those Maru games O-chan. and stuff. Yeah, because they, I think they... Or Super Mario. They went after them in courts or, or something along those lines, or tried to. Yeah, so my understanding is that when the family computer launched, it was just a first-party machine. For the first year, you just had Nintendo games. And then midway through 1984, you start seeing a few third-party publishers. Hudson. um, Namco, I think. Namco is one of them. There's a Konami. and Taito was pretty early as well. They were pretty early, yeah. Elevator action. Um, But it was mostly those. Oh, maybe Enix? Yeah, Enix. they did door door pretty yeah so you have like a handful maybe half a dozen companies that kind of showed up in 1984 and uh, you know a lot of them had been working on PCs already so it was um kind of a logical jump for them to say well there's this other system that's starting to take off let's try out some of our games over there so you saw stuff like load runner door door um some namco arcade classics like galaxian uh it all made sense some konami stuff that also showed up on msx so it was just, you know, those companies beginning to sort of right. explore. And about that time, the system really took off and exploded and became huge. So about a year after that, third parties really began in earnest. And you really started to see like an explosion. And by 1986, uh, the Famicom market was glutted with third party stuff of incredibly dubious value. Mm-hmm. And there's a magazine clipping that I think was on Shmuplations, uh, where there's like people, this is from 1986, 
lamenting that the the family computer was dead, that it had been destroyed by bad third party software, that it was that was all over basically. And around that time, Nintendo launched the family family uh, Famicom Disk System for the uh, for the console. They launched the U uh, the NES in America and then in the uh, in Europe. And um, yeah, they started to kind of crack down. Like when they right. launched the NES, the NES came with a security chip in place that forced third parties to you know publish through Nintendo. And that was where they they really started to lock down their controls. But they couldn't really do that with the Famicom. Because there were millions of systems already out there. Well, and also, I just don't think there was any precedent for them to even think about that. Because, uh, you know, we're talking 1983, the Famicom launches, right? And, and right. in America, you know, we're, we're still going through that, that like, Atari and television age over here. Uh, and, and we have a video game crash that is often blamed on a glut of product that uh, is of dubious quality. Um, Japan didn't have that. Especially in 1983, they, did, they didn't really have that equivalent. So whereas when uh, the NES was launched here, they, they very specifically in, in their marketing and, and, and publishing plans were, were uh, actively combating what they identified were factors in the crash. And, and uh, as part of that were uh, not approving games that they thought were bad. Whereas in Japan, that you know there were restrictions and, and they did have to go through Nintendo to publish, but... Uh, I, I think they let, they let a lot of, you know, kind of bad product through because it didn't really matter so much. There wasn't a crash that they were trying mm-hmm. to prevent. Well, if you if you look back at the the sort of history of Nintendo and the launch of the NES, like the they didn't know that the Atari crash was coming, that the the American market was about to collapse. They tried to distribute the NES, mm-hmm. the Famicom, through Atari. Like that's not something you do if if you know that the that company is about to go out of business or you know be severely impacted by those those massive losses. So yeah, I mean obviously they didn't build the Famicom with the the, the foresight of knowing well you know there's we need more controls in this thing to keep it from imploding. And they did try to sort of factor that in after you know sort of after the launch once third parties began to appear. It was something they could build into the the international releases of the console, but again, like there were millions of Famicoms on the market at that point. You can't like start releasing games that will only run on certain you know mm-hmm. systems with a security chip if there are two or three million security chip less systems in the market. So they just had to kind of use their clout, which at that point they had. Like you know, they the the Famicom had become huge. So they could, you know, start to lean on publishers to say you need to, you know, you need to go through us, and that actually caused some bad feelings with Namco. Namco, um, the reason most of their games were published through Tengen in America is because they basically said, "Well, we were here early. You gave us these favorable terms. Now you're going back on those, and we feel like that's not, you know, like that's a poor, you know, you're acting in poor faith after we helped you build this console." So. There were there were some really bad feelings there, and they moved over to PC Engine development for a long time. Uh, so you see a lot of Turbo Graphics games, um, and then other Namco games that did come out for NES. Like I said, in America, mostly came through Tengen unlicensed because Namco was like, "Let's stick it to to Nintendo." Yeah, Namco didn't release games under their own name in the U.S. until early 90s 92 or 93 yeah i mean there wasn't a namco home division in the u.s until mm-hmm. then is my understanding 
Right, but they didn't they didn't release any very many official licensed games uh, for a long time. Like Tengen had Pac-Man, which they published as a licensed game, and then that was like one of the three licensed games yeah. they did, and then that was reissued uh, as an unlicensed game, and then eventually Namco republished it as a licensed product in like 1993. Um, but aside from I think Zevius and Galaga, which were published by Bandai. In America, everything else from Namco, like um, Rolling Thunder and and so forth, uh, you know, Mappy RBI Land. RBI Baseball, yeah. Well, actually, Mappy Mappy Land was Mappy what Taxan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But but you saw a lot of a lot of uh, Tengen published Namco games, and that's that's part of why. Um, so anyway, what was my point with all of this? Oh, just that you know, like <laughs> I, I I was just trying to sort of uh, get on the topic of why there are crappier games in Japan than there are here. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are something like 1,400, 1,500 Famicom games, official releases in Japan, and about 750 in America, like yeah. somewhere around there. Um, so literally half as many games in the U.S. as in Japan. And it's not like we missed out on 750 amazing games. Basically, I mean, you take the number of games we have here, good and bad, and multiply those by two, and... You have twice as many crappy Famicom games as you do crappy uh, NES games. Yeah, there aren't really a whole lot of hidden gems that were Japan only. The Famicom, like there's a few, like Ataki, that uh, mm-hmm. that music game mm-hmm. uh, gimmick. Yep. But most of the stuff that wasn't released here, I mean, we we wouldn't have wanted it released. Right, if we had seen what they were getting over there. I mean, there's there's some there's some cool stuff, but most of most of the stuff that came out just in Japan is like, oh, that's pretty cool. I would have enjoyed that back then, but very little like, oh my god, how do we miss out on this? Or like, you know, like there there are some interesting like adventure games, but I I would argue the Princess Tomato is the best one, and we got that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the most part. If a game came out in Japan and was good, then someone said, we should publish that in America because it'll make money over there. So actually, I would say the proportions, uh, we probably had we probably a much higher better, proportion yeah. of good games. Yeah. Like most of the stuff that came from Japan, not not all of it, but like 50-50 that came from Japan to America was good. Um, and then most of the bad stuff that you see on NES was probably developed like in the UK or in the US. Right. Because made by Gremlin or Rare and like two and, uh, Ocean. Don't forget Beam Software probe. from Australia. Yeah. 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 Like those, I mean, which is not to, you know, throw shade at those companies, but they had a much later start with the hardware than Japanese publishers and developers. Well, they also, excuse me, uh, they also came from a, a microcomputer background mm-hmm. where they were, you know, making games that you bought for $2 at the grocery store. Right. So they would. And also, standards of what was good in, in the UK was a lot different. I mean, I think this their tastes were very different. I mean, we play a lot. If we look at like these ZX Spectrum games, I mean, the people who lived through that in the UK, they they love them, but they, they all seem, have Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> they, yeah, they seem god awful to us and just completely unplayable messes. But, but they also think NES games look terrible. So well, yeah, some of them do. Some I don't know. It's it's a generalization. But no, we're we're definitely right and they're wrong. Right. <laughs> That's right. Make make video games great again. That, that's going to be a dated oh. reference by the time oh. this episode drops. Thank God. Yeah, think think of the the lucky listeners in the future 
who are living in a post-election world. Yeah. Well, maybe. We'll see how, how the hanging chads do this year. I mean, True. if you detect any fear in our voices, the election is two days away. Yeah, we're, we we're, close, we're close to Armageddon here. I hope that we live to publish this episode. Um, so anyway, yeah, like that's kind of the context for what we're talking about. So going back to 1985 when the Famicom starts to become really huge and everyone's like, let's get in on that. I mean, naturally, you had companies with background in video games who were like, let's jump in. So you had like Capcom, which was a pretty young and plucky games developer in the arcade, who were like, let's make some some uh, NES games or Famicom games. But Capcom didn't have – it was a little tiny company that made arcade games. They didn't have an NES or home development division. So – what does a company like Capcom do when it wants to take a cool game like Ghost and Goblins or 1942 to the NES? Well, it says let's contract that out. So you also had these companies blooming from nowhere that existed just to basically ghost ghost write video games for publishers. And at the same time, you also had companies that had no experience in video games whatsoever like record companies or electrical power companies that are like, well, kids like video games. We could do video games. Why not? I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense for Meldak, a jazz music label, to say let's make video games because it's a packaged media product, kind of like a jazz record, sort of. But I don't know about Square Soft, which emerged from, like I said, an electrical power company. Uh, I mean, yes, video games run on electricity, <laughs> but I, I don't know. But both involve money coming in yes, to the company's coffers. and that's ultimately the, the most important thing. And you have to keep in mind the, the economy of the time. This was the, the very roundest part of the economic bubble, the, the miracle, you know, the bubble in Japan where money just – flowed like water. It trickled through everyone's fingers and they splashed themselves with yen coins and laughed because there was so much money. And everyone was like, how did Japan, this company or this country that was crushed in World War II and impoverished and burned to the ground, how did it come back like that in 40 years? It's terrifying. They have all this money. And that would disappear like five years later. But at this time, companies just threw money at anything. This is this is the period of original animated videos where you would buy a video cassette of 30 minutes of anime and it would cost $80 because everyone had money. So why not? Let's let's make a movie that's just dark and cynical and violent animation and pour tons of money into it and make the most beautiful dark and cynical and horrible animation you've ever seen. Like that's that's the context of these games. Like just just dark what? cynicism. Yes. No. What? <laughs> just we have money. Let's do stuff with it. Let's make more money. So, yeah. That's that's kind of where all of this comes from. The the Famicom boom, the economic miracle, and dark cynical anime. I guess. Yeah. And it's just you know, as companies increasing their portfolios, right? Is is really what it comes down to mm-hmm. for in a lot of these cases. Yeah, because that kind of, you know, sort of investing in other types of products, I mean, that makes your company more financially sound. That way, if one thing collapses, you still have other stuff to to rely on. So it, it's, it's, it, is, it is a good business decision for these companies to branch out in, in video games. Yeah, I mean, that's what Nintendo did. Nintendo mm-hmm. was a toy company. Before that, they were like a love hotel and packaged rice company. And they said, well, it kind of makes sense to turn our toy business into a video game business or to have the video game business running in parallel. And eventually, 
the video game business subsumed all the other aspects and it became a video game company until Amiibo came out and it became a toy company again. <laughs> and um, yeah, like, so this was a natural decision, I think, in a lot of ways. But not every company that made this this leap did it very well. And you did have companies that came around this time, like Sunsoft or Natsume, that eventually, you know, they went through some rough times. You had your... Uh, Dr. Sparkle's shuddering at the mention of Sunsoft, but Sunsoft started to make some pretty good games after about three years. It's those those first three years that were really difficult, and you had games that meant well, like uh, Modola no Subasa, Wing of Modola. Oh yeah, that, like uh, it's almost this really cool action RPG, but it sucks. And um, Atlantis no Nazo, which is almost this really cool exploratory pitfall style game, except it's hateful and kills you all the time, and the controls are terrible. But eventually, they they learn from it. Yeah, and, and then you got you got Blaster Master and Batman, and and now you have Blaster Master Zero coming from Quest also. Oh, that was that was a weird edge case. Yeah, that but was, it's still that was designed like... by Americans. Yeah, but it's still the same team, I, I think, as, as Batman and. and it, yeah, it's and, uh, just Blaster like Master. the top-down sections of yeah, Blaster Master, which is without the tank, which is the cool part of Blaster. What the tank? Is, is it Master Blaster? Or Blaster Bla- or Master? It, it is Master Blaster was the villain on um, Kid Video. Okay. Yes, I I I. We look like cartoons. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that. Wow, cartoon. you you kids didn't grow up with Saturday morning cartoons in 1984 or whatever. Okay. Um, Sorry, Jeremy. That's okay. Someone's got to be the old person here. Is that a good segue to uh, to a Saturday morning 1984 cartoon game on your list? Oh, what what game is that? Would that be a Transformer uh, oh. Boy known? Okay, Nazo? yeah. So so let's let's make a clean break here. Um, I've basically broken a put together a huge list of developers, publishers, and their games, like their notable, most horrible, despicable games, um, and I've kind of broken that into three sections. There's the tolerable tier. There's the crummy tier. And then there is the trash tier. So why don't we just start with the ugliness first Ooh. and look at look at trash tier. These are the, the companies that never did anything good. And again, I don't want to say like these are bad people who hate children or anything like that. But for whatever reason, their business model did not encompass – like there was no Venn diagram – between our business and good games. It was always just like, let's churn out some stuff. So the sort of like the, the Adam Sandler of exactly, video game Exactly, exactly. As long as it made money. Less annoying though. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. They, they never sang in a baby voice when playing a ukulele. So that's Advantage Micronics. <laughs> <laughs> but the music for the Micronics 1942 must be one of the most annoying video games. Oh, I thought that was someone trying to communicate with me in Morse code. I mean, it, it like, is... Like, help me. Let me out of this game. How many kids just turned off the volume on that? I mean, that was beyond belief. It's Yeah, it's like Morse code and static. 
I don't know. When I was a kid, I, I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, but when I was a kid, I, I don't think I recognized quality uh, in video games. I just accepted that, like, oh, that's what this game is. Yeah, kids are stupid. You yeah, know. absolutely. If there's anything you want to take away from this episode, it's like kids are stupid. <laughs> kids are stupid and will buy anything if it has a neat box, and their parents are like, we're never playing more video games again because this is a waste of money. But Micronics, um, I think, at least for you, Dr. Sparkle, is, is maybe the most notorious Famicom developer. Yeah, maybe. I mean... And I say for you because you're the one who's actually played all I of I had never heard of Micronics play. until right. Crontendo. Like, I just thought, man, Capcom really sucked in the early days, yeah. and then they suddenly got really good. That's weird. Well, obviously, their their first two were uh, 1942 and Ghost and Goblins for Capcom, and then they started working with just all kinds of crazy companies. I mean, well, they were mostly SNK after that. They did, yeah, they did Akari Warriors, which was, I think they did Akari Warriors 2 as well. Mm-hmm. And eventually they somehow changed to a company whose name is called Chaos. Mm-hmm. With a K. Yes. Which is, I'm pretty sure, my hacker alias from the BBS in 1995, 1955. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and eventually, Micronics, I mean, they, they started doing other things. Like they started making things like sort of text adventure games. And those are a little bit harder to screw up. Think in some way because I mean all you have to do is create static pictures and text and some kind of plot. But well, yeah, and and also I would say that that uh, you know that they could very well be a work for hire developer as opposed to like game creator, right? right so right. like a text adventure might be delivered to them completely designed, and it's just make this into a thing that goes on the TV. Right. All they have to do is sort of make the pictures and the words. Yeah. And it's not a situation like Ghosts and Goblins where you have to sort of design this very careful control scheme and jumping controls and physics and all that stuff. So some of their later stuff doesn't look that bad, but it's also stuff that's maybe a little harder to screw up. Right. I mean, the, the biggest problems with Micronics games, especially the early stuff they did for Capcom and for SNK, like Athena, um, is, you know, like static pictures, that's great for them because they were really bad at frame rates. They were like making NES games that had like 12 frame per second frame rates. Like that's, 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 uh, that's, a, that's impressive actually. Like the, the slideshow effect on NES, really? You don't see a lot of that. <laughs> um, and they also had this really distinctive sound driver that was painful. Um, now, now, Frank, you said, like, you didn't mind that at, at the time, but I guess maybe because I'm a few years older than you, my friends and I, like, definitely had opinions on which NES games were good and which were really bad. And things like 1942's quote-unquote music, like, that definitely did not sit well with us. I didn't play that one back then. I played Ghosts and Goblins, though, and I, I don't know. I didn't see anything wrong with it. I was just like, oh, this game is too hard for me, was, was my dumb kid opinion. Yeah, which know. is still true, but like, <laughs> uh, but among other things, right? But I don't know, like that—that's one game. That and like Chubby Cherub, like there was just sometimes I could tell, like this game is not as well made as others, and like I, I would sometimes think that about the like the Nintendo Black Box games. Like this game is not that well made, but like then you would you know play it side by side, you know Ice Climber, which is a kind of crummy game, but play that side by side with Chubby Cherub, and you're like, no, actually. Chubby Cherub is a worse game yeah. in a lot of ways. Like the controls don't feel right, but also the collisions don't feel right. 
but also everything moves weirdly and the sound is bad and so forth. Yeah, Ice Climber is just a simple game. I mean, there's not much to it, but they... It just has a really bad jump arc, that's which is only unfortunate. Problem. Which yeah, is unfortunate because it's a game all about jumping. Whereas, if they could fix that, it would be actually pretty good. Chubby Cherub, I mean, everything just seems a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not quite right. Just the way everything looks, the way everything controls. It, it's just that for whatever reason, uh, that, was, that was made by... Tose. It was made by Tose. We'll as, talk about them as, in, a, as you, in a moment. As you kids call it. But you actually <laughs> pronounced it correctly. Last time it'll he had, happen. He had, to, he had to force himself. Yeah, I could he, see the he pain, could see and, the pain yeah. in his face. It's okay. You can say Tosa if you want. Now, it's interesting. No, you can't. Micronix also <laughs> developed for um, one of the very first sort of non-game-related companies to release games for the Famicom was uh, Takuma Shoten, and they were a publisher. Mm-hmm. They and, did a lot of manga. Yeah, and their first two games were Lot Lot and X-X's, both of which were pretty bad, but actually were developed by Micronix. Well, X-X's was a Capcom game in the arcades. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah. The, but Killer they, Bees game, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Savage Bees. Savage Bees, that's it. But both of those ports were, again, just, just like uh, Ghosts and Goblins, just terrible junk. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know how Takuma Shoten ended up with X-X's, why Capcom didn't release it themselves, but that's just kind of how weird things were back then. I mean, you'd find companies that made the arcade game were releasing Famicom games, but somehow this particular port got licensed in some completely random company. Yeah, it's all a mystery. Like but, Sunsoft with the Sega games. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange. Well, that I think it has to do with Sega being a competitor to Nintendo and mm-hmm. Sunsoft sure. probably saying, well, we like these games. Can we put these on Famicom? Would that be okay? Can we license them? Can we give you money to put your games on a competing system? And Sega, who had like a tenth the install base, probably was like, yeah, okay, why not? Yeah. Um, why that, would, so that, why would that's they kind say of, no to that? Yeah, right. That's kind of a weird case. But but yeah, I definitely like the that, – that's kind of the inspiration of this whole episode is just like all these weird names doing weird things and the, the strange connections. Like there's no way for us to – no. Sit down and dig into all of that. Like that's that's just that's that's a lifetime. We don't project have time right to do investigative reporting in Japan. On, yeah, on these companies. I mean, I do what I can with Game Boy World, but even that, like you know, getting help from people who read more Japanese than I do, there's not that much out there. Well, yeah, I, mean, I was gonna say like there's not anything really in Japanese that you can read that explains these companies. Yeah, like probably. is there anyone in Japan who cares that Tokuma Shoten uh, published? Savage Bees or XXX's? No, they no one cares. It was just one of those things. It's this game, and it was on Famicom, whatever. It's so, probably so in the Kusoge corner. You mentioned that that there's a rumor that Micronix was one guy, and that 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 makes sense to me. Um, yeah, I should say one person. I should I shouldn't be gender specific, but uh, that you know they they strike me as games that are developed by one person, that, right? At that, least at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, that you know. They're, they're, they're engineers, right? It's, it's, it's probably an engineer that, like, got a sound driver working and never wanted to revisit it because they're not an artist. They're an engineer, right? And, you know, they, 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 had, they had a programming routine that displayed multiple sprites at once, and maybe it didn't look great, but why would they revisit it? It works, you know? And, like, that's what their output sort of reminds me of. Yeah, so Dr. Sparkle, like I said, Crontendo was the first time I ever heard of Micronix. Where did you come up with that name? Like, where did you find, oh, 1942 can was I developed guess? by Micronix? You, you can guess. Go uh, ahead. The Game Developer Research Institute. That's that's right. Okay. Yes. 
Um, because they, yeah, like they seem to be the primary source of Micronics online. And I, I feel like they've gone in and kind of like done additional research after some of your episodes have come out. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're where I, I came up with the, the tidbit that there's speculation that it was like a college student who wanted to become a game designer and took jobs, you know, converting Famicom games for publishers and never actually got to make his own games. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much of that is true. Like, there's no real information about Micronics on the internet. And it's a lot of speculation and, like, things that have been sourced from, like, single tweets by Japanese developers five years ago. It's all, you know, hearsay and, and innuendo. And that's kind of unavoidable just because of the nature of, of uh, Japanese business culture where relationships are very important and also very guarded and there's not a lot of spilling dirt on on other people. Yeah, they tend to be very secretive mm. unlike US game developers who I just I wouldn't say secretive, I'd say discreet. Okay. I I don't think they're like we must not tell anyone like our secrets. Uh maybe Nintendo, but but for the most part it's it's just more like oh well, you know, like that was something between us and we're not going to talk about that externally. So that's another barrier to getting information on all this stuff. But yeah, like like Frank said, Micronics is one of those developers where you play their games and you're like, I could see one person doing this. Yeah. And they they probably had like six weeks to put together. I mean, like, you know, I, I, it's kind of a, a, a Pac-Man for Atari 2600 situation. Right. Like just a little bit of money and a little bit of time. And we're not going to give you source code to work with, but please take this – you know, world-class, complex platformer, like revolutionary video game like Ghost and Goblins yeah. and put it on NES now. Thank you. And, you know, like if you if you had the whole story, that might look like a pretty miraculous port. But, mm-hmm. but since we don't, it, it's a pretty crappy port. Well, you know, actually that's the first NES game release to include or to have to have been programmed for one of the advanced mapper chips. I want to say... Oh, is it an MMC1 game? I don't think it's MMC1. I think it's um, like UNROM. Or, uh, yeah, it's like, sure. it's like the, the third generation chip yeah. before MMC1. But um, so for whatever reason, this possibly one guy was able to put his pretty janky port of a great arcade game on like, you know... A knowing Nintendo on, on a not at all documented uh, new piece of hardware. Right. So you kind of start to understand why Ghost and Goblins is kind of crummy on NES. Um, I don't know why they put it on the NES Classic Edition mini console. That's not a port that deserves to be chronicled and, and saved for posterity. But there it is. It's out there. I mean, it sold well, right? I mean, those those early games mm-hmm. sold tons from what I understand. So like all, it, yeah, well, yeah, are you talking about NES games or yeah, Famicom any, games? NES. I, I think it sold pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it was out there early. It was one of the definitely one of the like the first or second wave of third party titles for Famicom or for NES. Um, it's one of the earliest, I would say, uh, ports of a game that people actually played in the arcades. Yeah, the I NES. mean, Ghost and Goblins came out in arcades the same month that Super Mario Brothers debuted on NES or Famicom. So, and it, they were both kind of equally like, "Wow, I can't believe it!" Yeah. So when Ghost and Goblins came to NES, I mean, that was a pretty big deal. And I think that made up, you know, like people didn't mind the fact that it was kind of crappy because you expected a home port of a of, a, of an arcade game to be kind of crappy. And they, it wasn't until later it. that, yeah, like it, later we started to see that, oh, no, the NES can do better than this. But I guess at the time, like it was still sort of untested and 
it was better looking than anything on Atari 2600 or in television, so this is the coolest game. Well, and I also think a lot of these games that we think are bad games are also running on bad hardware. You know, like like budget isn't just the time that goes into the making the game, it's also the hardware that you will manufacture the game on. I think a lot of people don't understand that NES games, you know, they evolved and got a lot better looking, but that's not because necessarily that people got better at making NES games. A lot of it also has to do with that the cartridges themselves had evolving hardware inside of them. It, that allowed it's both. More I techniques. mean, yeah, it there, is both, there are absolutely. some there are some pretty crappy games on on MMC three yeah. chips, but yeah, for sure, like two things had to happen. People had to kind of come into their own, and the hardware inside the cartridges had to get better. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of cases here, I would imagine, where, like, you know, they're halfway through development and then uh, the manufacturing budget gets cut and they have to port down to the, you know, like a, a crappier uh, cartridge format. Um, I don't know why I'm getting defensive about these games we haven't even named yet. But. Uh, it's, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> like, on, on one hand, um, I have friends who bought Micronics developed games for NES and were really unhappy about it. I had a friend who bought a Akari Warriors and was just, like, livid. He lent it to me and was like, this game is so bad. You can play it, but it's terrible. And I played it, and it was terrible. It was bad. True. Like, a, a really awful port. Like, it's it's possible to um, become stuck in that game, like, because you have, like, this cheat code where you can continue infinitely. If you do it in the wrong place, you can get stuck in scenery, and no one can kill you. And that's that's as far as you can go. That's it. I did not know that. I it happened to me. Yeah, so in the in the the bottom tier, you also have Culture Brain. I, I just kind of have a grudge well, against them. I okay, the the people think, oh, <laughs> Culture Brain, the Magic of Shahrazade, that game was cool. It was, it was really cool. Yep. And everything else Culture Brain did, I think, is terrible. Flying Dragon is fine. You know the whole series. Fine, it's okay. Fine. Um, that's a that's a that's a sterling defense. Well, it's you're saying they're like you have them in the bottom tier. Okay. This is like I'm garbage. Just, I'm bitter tier. because of of Ninja Boy for Game Boy. That game is trash. I have not played the Game Boy. Oh version. god. The NES one is also fine. It's mm. just a dumb game. I don't want like to play that, it. Kung but Fu it's Heroes. Not. Like uh, it's just stuff like eh, it exists. I don't know. Exactly. But that's like it exists as not bottom of the barrel worst developer on the system tier. That yeah, they're they're not in the same league as some of these other guys. And they did create one great game which seemed so far ahead of its time. Yeah. Sherazad. And the the other stuff it's okay. It seems to be a little bit better than like the the, the Tose stuff. It, it's not great, but I mean I think that to call them bottom of the barrel is is way off. It's okay, also I'm being irrational here. It's I don't fine. know. It, it's also consistently like kind of goofy and and it, like there there there's. I mean, some but there's a lot of goofiness in in Japanese developed NES games. Sure, but I don't know. It, it's just that 
it, it, it's like calling Ed Wood the worst director or something. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, technically maybe they're not amazing, but like there, there is some consistency to it, and I'd rather play their their broken, interesting games than than a uh, than a technically solid, uh, boring game. Mm, okay, <laughs> that's fine. We can agree to disagree. Their advertising was funny. They they did have good advertising. Very memorable. Yeah. Very, and Magic of Shahrazadi was a yes. really cool game. Like they, even they had back a then, certain I amount of personality. Yeah. Okay. There is that. I mean, I was I was talking to Frank before this episode started about how much I really love uh, Victo Kai and games mm-hmm. like Golgo 13 and Clash of Demon Head, which I recognize objectively are not really good games, but I really liked them. And they, they felt like they were really trying. Like, how do you take a long-running spy, like violent spy manga with lots of sex and killing and turn it into a game for kids? Well, I, I don't know, but they did, and they they made it like this multi-format platformer and light gun-style shooter and maze game, and you fly around in helicopters, sniping. and you can swim, and there's sniping sequences, and you end up sniping Hitler's brain at the end. So that's cool. It's it's uneven yeah, they, and sloppy, they, but it's also cool. Victor Kai, I mean, they're certainly like in the top 25% of Famicom games, I mean, no, no questions asked. I mean, there, there's so much mediocre, boring stuff. At least they have personality. They're they're different, and they put sort of new things that you haven't mm-hmm. already seen a million times. Mm-hmm. So many of these Famicom games, I mean, it's literally just the same stuff over and over with different tell sprites. Us about, different... Tell us about Dragon Quest clones, Uncle Doctor Sparkle. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them actually. So Dragon Quest came out in when? Ni- early 1986? May 86. May 86. There you go. And it took a while, but the, the weirdest damn things got converted into Dragon Quest clones like Zoids, which are those robot dinosaurs. I played one of those on Game Boy World. And they, they made them in I – mean, it's odd because you have what I believe are these like Godzilla-sized mechanical dinosaurs like walking into castles. Aren't they like – robot suits that people control? Well, there's like a little guy who sits sits in the... A little tiny guy sits in the head. So they're they're huge. They're like Mechagodzilla or something. Mm. The viewers cannot see me holding my hands up. I see, though. That's what counts. Very impressive. I mean, of all the things that, though, you would do with like the Zoids license, putting them into like a a Dragon Quest clone is certainly the most bizarre because you have like Zoids, shopkeepers... I mean, it, it makes no sense at all. What was the game that I saw on Contendo that was a weird Dragon Quest-y game where the the, <laughs> the environmental tiles made absolutely no sense? Like, you'd be walking on water sometimes, and, like, it it, it had a triple-digit HP counter. Oh, oh uh, st- Stargazers. Hoshio Miro yes. Hito. Yes. That's on the list. That's that's a game. And I think when I did, like, my, my, my list of, like, the worst Famicom games that I'd experienced at that point, I think that was number two. I think that's After right, yeah. Super Monkey Diboken, it's it is a huge mess. I mean, there's no other. I mean, you wouldn't think that making a an RPG would be really that hard, but they somehow managed to mess up every single aspect. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, you, the the town that you begin in when you exit the town, the town is for some reason not displayed on the, right. the main map, so you don't know where you are. All of a sudden, I mean, and every single decision is is just completely bizarre in terms of like when you fight how much damage you do how much damage they do to you everything is completely unbalanced 
Yeah, who was the developer on Hoshio Mirohito? Uh, it's on here. Oh yeah. Oh, while you're looking that up, I I I, I want to say that that uh, my my feeling when I when I see that game and I haven't played it. I've just oh, that's, I've that's only, another another play it. I will not play it. I've played it through you. Um, my feeling looking at it is that it's a situation where like they had to suddenly stop and just wrap up whatever mm. they had in progress and just make it not broken mm. and ship it, you know, because, like, it just doesn't make sense. There, there's no way that someone, you know, was directing that game and looked at it and went, yep, got it, nailed it, that's what I was going for. You know, like, it's obvious that, that like, tons of stuff was cut and just, like, sewn together as tightly as they could. But, yeah, I think that's generally considered to be sort of the most infamous RPG, Dragon Quest-style RPG on the Famicom among among Japanese gamers. Did you find out who did that one? Yeah, that was developed by Another, Another which is a company yes. that um, does things like championship bowling. So maybe a sci-fi RPG wasn't in their wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, some of these guys, I mean, they, they can put out like decent golf games or decent Mahjong games, but they they completely do not do well in other genres. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's that's part of the problem here is that you had um, just people throwing everything they had at the wall. And some games you're going to make as a passion project, and some games you're going to make because that's what someone tells you to do, even if you don't get it. Yeah. And some games require much more development time than others. Like a baseball game is probably pretty straightforward to create because you have all the rules right there and the the scene, and there's a good template for it. And games like you know. Famista or Nintendo Baseball, but then something like an RPG, like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff to deal with. There's stats and there's equipment and there's shops and there's NPCs and there's towns and there's world maps and there's battles and there's monsters and whoa, what's going on in a magic system? Like, that's that's a lot more to take care of than a baseball game. And you have to kind of invent that from whole cloth or else totally rip it off from someone else's game. So, yeah, like, I, I think it's pretty easy to kind of understand why so many of these games were terrible when you stop and, and think about it. But it doesn't change the fact that there were lots of children paying $50 to play terrible video games. And that was like three months of allowance. What did they do for the next three months? Were they, they actually keep playing that, that in Japan? Yeah, they were like between 4,000 and 6,000 yen, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, 4,500, 5,500 were sort of... The and common price. Yeah, is, then is you that had equivalent like, to what we had here, like fifty. Yeah, bucks-ish. Okay. and then and then you well, exchange rates were kind of weird back then, but yeah, roughly. Um, yeah, sure. Roughly, like the the system sold for fourteen hundred yen, I think the Famicom did. So, like you know, and here it sold or was it a hundred? Yeah, it was hundred. It was it was uh, like one hundred fifty. Uh, sorry, yes, yeah, fifteen thousand yen. So that's like okay. one hundred fifty dollars equivalently. So. Pretty pretty equal. And then you had like specialty chip games like um, uh, Lagrange Point by Konami that had the FM synthesis chip yeah. inside of it. BRC7. And that sold for like 90 or 9,000 yen. So well, we had that bigger too with like Fantasy Star 4 and stuff. Yeah, but not on NES. Sure. sure. So like you had games getting kind of really far into the weeds in pricing uh, on, on, on Famicom. Anyway, the point is like I, I, I can see why people would have a grudge against some of these games. Yeah. At the same time, there is – there, there can be a fondness for these bad games like kusoge, which means shit game right. in Japan. Um, like people have sort of a soft spot for a lot of these games, like Takashi Meiji or no, uh, uh, Takeshi yeah, Takeshi no Chosenjo, yeah, yes. Takeshi's Challenge. That's it. Mm. Um, 
Like people, but that's bad on purpose. Though, it is bad on think, purpose, right? but but when you're you know eight years old and you buy it, you don't realize that. But did eight year olds buy games by famous comedians? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Was that more for adults? I don't know. That's another weird thing is there are so many video games that involve Japanese TV personalities getting their own game. Like, well, the most common one other than uh, Takeshi Takano is um, on the TurboGrafx, JJ and Jeff. Mm -hmm. In Japan, it was based on uh, two comedians. Kato and Ken. Yeah, Yeah. but but a lot of these guys, I mean, it doesn't seem like – well, I guess – well, now, Takano was known for that – that game show challenge thing, his like uh, Takeshi's Castle or mm-hmm. whatever yeah. it was called. And Ultimate there were, Ninja basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Most the, the extreme Jap- elimination challenge. <laughs> the, the, Jap- the original Japanese version of that. Yeah. So I guess kids might know who he was, but he was sort of like an adult humor type comic from what I understand. So it would be like George Carlin's challenge. There you go. Okay. But George – oh, he, he did do kid stuff. Never mind. Yeah. Did he? Well, wasn't he uh, Thomas the Tank Engine's uh, – I thought that was Ringo Starr. Wasn't George conductor? It's easy to get those two mixed up. It is. They kind of look alike. Was it? They're both bad drummers. (laughs) Oh, whoa! No. Okay, sorry. That was that was called Carlin's drumming. (laughs) I know. He's actually a great drummer. Um, (laughs) That was drumming too. Wow, that that was well done. (laughs) Uh, Thanks. I'm a pretty good drummer myself. Uh, Yeah. So. I'm I'm trying to think of the anyway. We we okay. We we kind of we kind of went off course there, but. So bad games existed. Transformers was really them. bad. We didn't talk Transformers, Transformers was really bad. Yeah, we we really kind of straight off. Um, who developed Transformers? It was published by Takara. Oh yeah, yeah. I I um I screwed up on my my list here. Where did I? Oh, that was Intelligent System Corporation. Oh, not to be ISCO. Bacon, mistaken yes. for Intelligent Systems, right. the Nintendo subsidiary, the subsidiary that makes really, really good RPGs and strategy games. This is ISCO, and they made some weird stuff. Yeah. Okay. So Transformers Convoy No Nazo. That probably should have gone and put them in the trash tier. Honestly, that, that game is bad. That is a trash game. Yeah, I don't know if how many people have actually loaded up a ROM and tried to play it, but. It's one of those games where it's difficult to avoid getting killed like in like literally the first second right. of the game mm. because something like comes at you like immediately. Single hit kills. Yeah. And when you, you transform from your your big rig truck into Optimus Prime or I guess for some reason they call him Convoy. That's his Japanese name. That's his Japanese name, yes. Or Convoy. Convoy. It's actually misspelled on the, the box art. So you, you become com- completely exposed when you're transforming and when you shoot a guy above your head, they – fall right on you and kill you it's i suspect that probably most kids playing this thing back in the day never got to the end of the first level if they owned it they did yeah maybe you 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 spend a lot of time when you're well that's six years old learning learning how reflexes work and and just memorizing things and and slamming your skull against sadness Mm -hmm. and You'll you'll make it. They may never have beaten it, but you know they would they would play probably pretty far into it, far enough to see that like the first boss is apparently a tiny unicron, and then the second boss is like the Decepticon symbol. Like I, I don't know. The, the, when I think of that game, that and the Macross game that I didn't put on this list, like to me those are redolent of the early days of emulation back like twenty yeah. years ago when emulators just first started showing up, and you could download. One ROM at a time from a GeoCity site, if you could find a GeoCity site that actually hadn't used up its data, 
bandwidth on downloading ROMs. And, you know, I would put these games together and be like, wow, cool. There was a Transformers game for NES. Yeah. I'm going to play this. And I would get my crappy little Gravis gamepad and boot up INS and be like, oh, wow, this game isn't good. Maybe it's just the emulation. Then I'd play Macross and be like, hey, here's another game that's actually very similar in spirit to that terrible Transformers game, and it's also bad. And it's then fun. I would play a game that I knew, like Kid Icarus or Bionic Commando, and they'd play pretty well. And I'd be like, no, it's not me. It's the games. <laughs> yeah, that seemed like one of the very, very first sort of like kind of infamous Japanese games yeah. that people discovered back then. That and uh, Bokusuka Wars? Ah, uh, yes. Are, so the, are these both products of SeanBaby.com? Mm, are they? I know Boku. No, Bokusuka Wars was not. We talked about that in our IRC channels back in the 90s. I don't remember where, where it first appeared on the web. Um, I remember Transformers was probably on Sean Baby somewhere. I don't know. I, I discovered it just through because it, around it the ROMs. says Transformers yeah. in the name. But yeah, so like literally, I think yeah. I think it was one of those things where people were like, I've got all these video games that I've never heard of, and I loved Transformers when I was a kid 10 right. years ago. So I bet this game's cool. Mm, okay, so I was wrong. Yeah. And you start to understand why these games didn't come to America. Oh, they made a game based on the movie Labyrinth? <laughs> That's great. I love David Bowie. Oh, this isn't good. Jennifer Connelly, what did you do to me? There's there's a game based on Milo and Otis on the Nintendo? Uh, which is not which is not a terrible – I mean, it's a charming game. It, it's not as, as bad as some of this stuff. It's got nothing to do with the movie. It, I mean, it's not even called Milo and Otis in Japan. It's Koneko right. no Monogatari, which means the story of kitten. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any particular kitten? No, just kitten. Just kitten. Great. <laughs> now, ISEO, one of the very first games was called uh, Sakima 2, which was based on a Japanese sort of glam rock band. They were sort of a kiss clone. They wore mm-hmm. like very similar makeup. And again, it's a, it's a very sort of basic run around and like a little dungeon thing, you know, jumping on platforms and stuff. But it just seems so odd by our own standards that that these guys, this, this apparently popular band in Japan that you've never heard of, somehow got their own video game. So a lot of their stuff is that was that was the Japanese equivalent of the Journey game, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe something like that. But of course, Journey is well loved worldwide. That's but, true, especially uh, uh, <laughs> here in my heart. In this room, yes, they're loved. But a lot of their games are not. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're terrible, but they often have like a certain sort of strange charm, charm to them at the same time. Like yeah. uh, Paris, uh, no, Paris Dakar yes. Rally. Yeah, that's that's the other game by ISCO or ISCO that I put on my list, and it it's bad, but it's interesting. Like they, oh, why don't you talk about it? Well, it it would appear to be a a racing game, like a regular racing game at, at first glance, mm-hmm. but strange things it's happen. Like a top down bump and jump style racer. Yeah, but then you like you like drive through the streets of Paris. You like have to um, stop. You go underground and like open up um, gateways, and you actually go underwater at some point. And it's horrible to play. I mean, every everything about the, the game, the controls, the, the graphics are incredibly ugly. It, it's unpleasant to play, but it's just so different than what you usually expect from a racing game that it has a certain uh, fascination to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it has like the side-scrolling sections yeah. where it's like almost like a precursor to Blaster Master. Yeah, you get out of you the car. You get out of your car to... and have to like throw switches and stuff to create mm-hmm. platforms to drive across. It's – yeah, like there was some effort there, some originality, some some creative thought, just not good execution. And the weird thing is why did they try to connect this to like an actual real-life famous car rally when the game did not depict the rally at all? 
I mean, I, I guess because the the Paris Dakar rally is kind of famous as being like this grueling challenge. Like if you're going to turn any race into a crazy platformer adventure, why not the Paris Dakar rally? I can I can kind of see where they were going with that, but again, like it just kind of fell flat in the execution. It, it it like the top-down racing is sloppy, the platforming is sloppy, the parts where you get out of the car are sloppy. It just doesn't quite come together, but they tried. Give them the little star that says you tried. Yeah, when you play these games, there are so many that are like, you know, oh God, not this same crap again, the same terrible baseball game I played 500 times. And then you come to stuff like, you know, Paris to Car Rally where it's like, this is horrible. Wow, it's, I've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. They were trying to do something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely get a lot of that in Game Boy World. Like, oh, it's another box pushing puzzle game. Mm -hmm. Oh, but here's a game where it's like you're, uh, like an army of samurai fighting through feudal Japan in a in a shoot 'em up, a formation based shoot 'em up. That's weird. What's this? And a lot of Famicom Famicom games, even good ones, were like that. Like that um, very early Hudson game, um, Challenger. Yes, yes which is yeah. odd because it, it starts off where you're like on a train mm-hmm. rescuing a girl, and then you sort you're of rescuing going... Princess Leia from Pink Darth Vader. Let's <laughs> let's make that clear. And then it just completely changes tone and you're like in like an early version of Zelda or yeah. something. It's it's top down and then you have to go into like dungeons where there's platforming challenges to get keys. And I've never actually made it past I – th- I think I made it to the third stage once. It's really hard and totally unfair. Uh, it's like – it's not fun but they tried. But it's really interesting. It, it's like a great switcheroo like yeah. mid, mid-game. I mean that game came out in 1985 about a month after Super Mario Brothers. So – like the platforming, by comparison, feels like absolute garbage. But like in terms of design and concept, it was really more like Zelda. Yeah. Or actually Zelda 2, where you have like the multi, multimodal play. So, so you know, I mean, there's that, some that real some points. Yeah. Right. It just it wasn't good yet. Like they 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 were still figuring out the hardware. But they had ideas. They did. They did. So uh, I, I, I want to take issue with something on your list here, okay. which is DOG. Okay. I think DOG was uh, meant to be sort of an indie budget label, uh, and you have them in here as sort of the bottom tier uh, crap. Uh, I think 3D World Runner is a fine game. I don't mm, think it's, it's great, okay. but it's fine. Uh, it was th- technically impressive. Yeah, but it's also like it's it's got they, good points. They hired Nasir Gabelli. He's going to make it technically impressive stuff for you. Yeah, and the, the song's really good. And like that's you, Nubo, Nub, Nobu Uematsu. It sure is. He's um, going to make good stuff for you. And like you know the the jumping actually feels kind of scary and weird. You know, mm-hmm. like when you fall. Like I think that's an okay game. And I, I think most of their output um, were just interesting, weird little ideas that they all were on discs, and they were all probably pretty cheap. You know, it was it was more of an indie label than it was, you know, something uh, uh, like a like a Capcom porting 40, 1942. Mm. So I, I I think it's unfair to think of DOG as, as as like a crap publisher. They're they're more like I don't know, I, I can't think of like like Midnight City was like an indie publisher like last year. I think they went out of business. But you know, I, I think of them more in, in those terms than I do as a company that produced crap. It was right. just, okay. Well, uh, I mean, DOG almost went out of business too. If yeah. it weren't for Final Fantasy, sure, that would have been the end of Square Enix since DOG was a, a subsidiary of Square Enix right. or Squaresoft at the time. Anyway, I like them because they, they, they publish a lot of weird Okay. I mean, things. they did publish weird stuff. They yeah. had like, like a port of Deep Dungeon 
Which um, I don't want to play, but no. it's, you know, it was it was probably like a $10 disc. But they adapted little computer people into Appletown Monogatari. Which, which was, is another weird experimental, yeah. like, Sims-like thing. I mean, it's not as good as the original, but, mm. you know. Okay, that's fine. Um, you don't necessarily have to agree with all my rankings. I kind of just threw them together for conversation. So Yeah, I know. Success. We had a conversation. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to take issue with Toachiki showing up nope. on the bottom of the list, though. Dr. Sparkle can probably tell us all about Toachiki. Does anyone know what their name actually supposed to uh, supposed to mean? I do not. They're probably most notable in the U.S. for the Week of Garfield game, mm-hmm. which is a rock-bottom platformer in which you play as Garfield. The idea, though, is interesting. It's like a week of Garfield. It's a week of comic strips. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a comic character in a week of... Oh. Yeah, okay. That's wa- about as walk, good as it gets. Walking across rooms and kicking mice and worms. It's like a precursor to Comic Zone. Maybe. <laughs> that's that's generous. It has a really good death <laughs> animation where he's just suddenly on his face and that's it. <laughs> like just no transition. He's just... <laughs> Actually, you, you, the, the animation's pretty good. Like when he jumps, he's sort of like his feet go down as like his head goes his yeah. head goes up. And then you're right. that The death animation is pretty amazing where he just like plops over... Yeah, completely dead. But I mean, it's one of those games. It's like it's kind of like like Back to the Future in the sense that you you go into it thinking this will have something to do with Garfield. Yeah, and then you're like, why is Garfield walking all over the place, kicking spiders? I guess I guess in the comic, he hates, he, spiders. He hates spiders. Yes, that's true. But well, there's worms. There's Does he punch Mondays. Birds, also? There, there's there's baseballs that fall down out of the sky for no reason. Because I, things I, fall out of skies in video games and you just have to put a random sprite on something, basically. And the annoying thing is, like, the little power-ups, they actually appear when you walk past them. So you have to back up yeah. to get every every single power-up. Well, it's that, it's that old design that mm. thankfully is gone forever where you just, like, move on, on the random tiles to make the thing you need appear. Everything's hidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? Like, play the Game Boy Advance Garfield game. It's worse. Really? It is, is a that worse a game. Tale of Two Kitties or something? I don't remember what it's called, but you're like you're like a bad JPEG of Garfield walking around because you remember when Game Boy Advance graphics? Yeah, were yeah, like yeah. That? They were like that. Like you could just scan like, a picture and yeah. it looks like garbage. Mm-hmm. And and the the Game Boy Advance Garfield is uh, you're in this huge environment that's tiling infinitely. It's the house, and uh, because I'm sure John lives in like a tesseract. Right, absolutely, and it's uh, collect all one hundred things, and then move on. Is mm. and and like I'd much rather play, you know, a crappy Famicom game where everything's trying to kill me, mm. than I would collect all the garbage mm-hmm. in one level. So uh, I'm not going to defend that game or anything. But point is, like, this didn't really stop. And also, Garfield uh, is garbage in any incarnation. Whoa! Yeah. So, <laughs> the, the other big Toachiki game was they made several Sherlock Holmes Three, games. The Sherlock Holmes trilogy. Yes. Uh, upon which Benedict Cumberbatch's series is no <laughs> doubt based. I'm sure that was the inspiration. Is he making BBC a version. Sherlock Holmes movie or something? No, the, the, Sher- uh, the you don't BBC know the series. series. I've n- never heard of it. So it's oh. just called Sherlock. I, I don't really follow there Benedict Cumberbatch. There are a lot, of, a lot of shows based on Sherlock Holmes these days. Because yeah. it, there's it's one in the U.S. Domain. with like some other guy, right? The yeah. U.S. one is is an adaptation of the Benedict Cumberbatch one, okay, more or okay. less, sort of. It's it's one of those series that or those, those franchises that has the tendency to turn like autism into a superpower, mm. questionably. Um, anyway, the, the first episode's really good. That's an aside. 
So the first Sherlock Holmes game, it's, again, one of those games that seems kind of interesting, but the execution is so odd and the choices are so odd. Um, it, you sort of, you know, go into like sewer levels and stuff. You find things. You're like killing people, aren't you? You, you yeah. kill an awful yeah. lot of people. You have a kung fu kick where mm-hmm. he sort of jumps up and kicks people. Also um, the inspiration for the uh, Robert Downey Jr. movies. It, it appears to be, yes. But you can walk around. It's almost kind of like a mini version of like Grand Theft Auto. You just walk around the streets just killing <laughs> pedestrians for no reason. London, 1886. And your clothes – and I don't know if there's some kind of technical issue with like the, 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 the palettes available. But your clothes change from purple to green yeah. when you go in and out. And I guess that, that must be a, a technical issue. But it – it's, it's a little disconcerting mm. the way your appearance completely changes as you go in and out. And the other games, uh, they sort of transitioned to more sort of boring like menu-based adventure games. Didn't they do Murder on the Mississippi? Was that them? Or was that someone else? Well, I think that was like an Activision comedy. Yeah, that game. was like a Oh, oh it, was, um, it was something similar. It was like a – Titanic Mystery? Maybe that's the one. Yeah, that was someone else. Okay. I, I will say that, that that first Sherlock Holmes game, a combination of that and seeing the Robert Downey uh, movie, um, my my dream video game project is 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 actually based on on those two things. Like it's a called, Toachiki version of the Robert Downey movie. It, it's called Junior Super movie. Sherlock Holmes, which is like the greatest video game title. It ever. is. It's pretty great. Um, and it's just like. What if a, a fairly competent, like, 16-bit era Japanese developer was given Sherlock Holmes and had no idea what it was? Mm. And that's it, basically the pitch. Basically just a home improvement ROM, ROM hack? Sort of, but it's it's more of an open world, like, like sort of, I, 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 I hate using the word Metroidvania, but, you know. It's like, okay. Yeah, it's okay. Like, yeah, you, you have the definitive website on Metroidvanias, so I guess I'm in, I'm in good company. But, you know, a platform game with, with environments that are like, you know, 221B Baker Street and like inside Watson's body. And um, <laughs> <laughs> you got to shrink like, down to go in his body. Oh, I thought that was like a sexual in you. No, 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 no. Okay, no. Never mind. You, you shrink to go inside like a, his Like body. a fantastic voyage. Yeah, right, thing. okay. And like London. Is, is, there's a town called London. You know, there's there's a, there's a town called Baskerville where all the people are dogs in like old uh, old style clothing, like like that Sesame Street skit with the dogs. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, Sorry, you you really missed out. I anyway, guess. I do. I did see Lemmy and My Llama though. Point is that this terrible game has inspired the greatest game that'll never be made. Hmm. Never. It's public domain. You could do it. Okay, where am I getting the money? I don't know. Refunding my game. Kick, Kickstarter. Yeah. Right. From the director of Sharknado, the video game. Yeah, exactly. Super Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I mean, Sharknado could be like a, a, a secret sub-boss or something. <laughs> there's there, so there's many, so many terrible games on Steam Greenlight. Why not? Mm, Why not another? true. I don't want to make this wrong. Like, it, 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 it will cost a lot of money. You want it to exist, like you just don't want game. to make it? Yeah. No, I'd make it given the budget, but oh. like, no one would ever pay the budget. It mm. would, that would be required to make a game that it feels like a low-budget game. That's what the lottery is for. Titanic Mystery was Gakken. Oh, okay. Gakken Holdings. Gakken. 
Oh, there it is right there. They also made Moulin Rouge Sinky. Yeah, which is... Which just, has nothing to do with the movie, disappointingly. Nothing at all. <laughs> Again, it's one of those games that's pretty impenetrable, I think, probably to... The non- war record of Moulin Rouge. Exactly. Yes, wow. right. Okay. Um, what? But Titanic Mysteries is a port of a, a U.S. computer game, a Commodore 64 game that was published by Activision. And oh, okay. they, they completely changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the U.S. Ver- version, you explore the Titanic using like a robot camera or something that you look through the rooms underwater. In the Japanese version, you control a woman in a swimsuit. And pretty much the same thing, right? Exactly. And you actually swim through the Titanic. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Okay. She has like this really weird walking animation where she like lifts her legs up like too high. Like goose stepping? Sort of. Almost. It, it's, it's the first, the third Reich took down the Titanic. Now we know. And what I haven't played the other Gakken stuff like Might and Magic Book One. Is that considered to be a bad port? No, I think, I think um, I put that down just because. A lot of these companies um, ended up porting Western games to mm-hmm. Famicom and other consoles. Yeah, there were um, all those like terrible RPG ports that just because of technical reasons just couldn't look as nice as the the uh, computer versions. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's a spectrum really. Like pretty much anything that uh, Pony Canyon had a hand in uh, for developing like AD&D stuff for Famicom mm-hmm. turned out really poorly. But then you had um, the developer Infinity, the, the company behind Battle of Olympus, and they did a lot of ports of Populous and things like that, not to Famicom, but to PC Engine, mm. to uh, like x86000 or 68000, um, to Super Famicom. And those actually turned out pretty well because the guy who ran Infinity was pretty competent and knew what he was doing and had a real passion for those games. So, like, oops. There's definitely, there's definitely a spectrum of, like, Really good and really, whoa, avoid that. Pools of Radiance on NES, maybe not the game you want to play. Maybe not the way to play that one. Infinity also made a, a really weird game called Kieta Princess, yep. uh, which one of those games that like, no one has ever done like an English language fact on it. Uh, so I, I, I want to get to that at some point because it's fascinating. It, it's weird and it's, again, one of those games, if you just sort of were to pick it up without knowing how to play it, you would really have a difficult time mm-hmm. with it. Well, I think that's one of those games that in context sort of goes to prove Frank's point about like no time, no money. Um, because that was, I interviewed, ah, crap, I forgot his name, Hoshi, Hoshi uh, Horimoto. Um, I interviewed him last year, mainly about Battle of Olympus, but we talked a little bit about him getting into... Famicom development, and that was his first game project. Um, it was developed for the publisher Imagineering, and it was like it was part of this series called Wave Jack, which mm-hmm. um, was one of three Famicom disk systems that Imagineering published that came with cassette tapes featuring songs by the idol music character, like pop stars. Uh, you know, flavor of the month that were the stars of these particular games. I don't know what the name of the person in this particular game was, Kieta Princess, but she was like, I guess, the princess that you had to rescue or whatever. So, like, he had never developed for Famicom before. It was like him and one other person making this game, not understanding the hardware, like learning as they went along, very little time, very little money. So, yeah, it didn't turn out very well. But then his next game was Battle of Olympus, which is a really good Zelda 2 clone. Like, it's it's... Oh, that's some, right. You don't, you some don't people like it. like it. 
You don't like it. I forgot. I think it's it's a solid game. It's really solid. That's what, that's and it's what also made by bats, two, two right? people. The, the, Every game has bats. Well, this is like the, <laughs> no, you're thinking of Ninja Gaiden. <laughs> no, no, this is like the worst. No, I think uh, Battle of has like the worst bats. No, the worst bats are Alf for the Sega Master System. They, 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 you played all the way through that, didn't I you? I did. Uh, I did. Uh, I beat it live on, on a live stream. But the bats in Alf, I'm just to- that has nothing to do with our. Uh, That's our okay. Talk here Alf is also not a good game. No, it's a, it's a terrible game. But but the bats, the, their their behavior is random, and uh, the hitbox makes absolutely no sense. And there's like no way to reliably get through that section other than like tap, hit, tap, hit, tap, hit. You know, and they're the worst. They are the worst. What would possess you to actually? Play all the way through Elf. Uh, curiosity and a love for bad games. I like bad games. But you're not going to play all the way through American Dream. Which one's that? The uh, the Pachi Kun. Oh uh, no, Pachio Kun. No. Pachio Kun. Yes, I mean, there you go. You no, I, I will play through a bad game where I'm running around and jumping. I will not p- play through a, a pachinko. I, I cannot imagine the patience required to actually play. Through My God. that game, or any gambling game, for you know, as far as I'm concerned, and they loved them in Japan. I mean, there were like how many, how many uh, Pachio Kun? There games were like the- eight Pachio Kun games, and then there were games that were clearly part of that universe <laughs> that weren't called Pachio Kun. I did one of those again for Game Boy World Pachinko Time mm-hmm. by the same developer and publisher, Marionette, and um, I don't remember, but I don't care. Um, anyway, yeah, like. You are an anthropomorphic pachinko ball traveling around conquering pachinko halls. And video game pachinko is really boring because you literally just sit there holding down the A button while kind of making fine-tuned adjustments with the Mm -hmm. D-pad to affect the stream of the balls that are flying out. And you just kind of sit there and watch as they trickle down the screen. And there's no, like real physics involved as there is in actual pachinko. So, But also some of the uh, most popular and biggest money-making games on Facebook are games where you click a button and the uh, the slot machine goes. Hey, I'm not saying that people don't enjoy it. Just like... Okay. Just saying that people are stupid. <laughs> I'm not going to go saying. that far. But <laughs> Apparently Kim certainly, Kardashian certainly makes things... most of her money from a mobile phone game. Mm-hmm. Is that really most of it? Well, that was she like forty five percent or something wow. of her income. I thought was from that game. That game's really popular. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. Yeah, me neither. But apparently, someone's buying it, or is it a free game? I don't know. Uh, it's free to play. Okay, so it's like micro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I only know old stuff. <laughs> okay, so there's one more game or one more developer that I have on the very bottom tier. Okay. That we should talk about before we take a break, and that is VAP. Oh yes. Which stands for Video audio projects. And this is kind of like, in some ways, it's it's the platonic ideal of this episode because VAP was actually a media publisher, published music and stuff, and they were like, let's make some video games, and they were bad. I mean, eventually they, they got okay. Like, VAP apparently was responsible for the Super, or, yeah, the Super NES version of Qbert 3, hmm. which is kooky and weird. They had some connection to that. Maybe they just published it in Japan, but at least their name is attached to something that is interesting. But I don't, I don't know. Have you played it? Uh, very briefly. Okay, I can't say that I have. I, no. didn't, I didn't actually know there was a Keyboard 3. Now, this, was a, this is topical because there's a Trolls movie coming out now or yeah. something. They actually um, 
put out a NES game that got released in Europe under the name Trolls and Crazy Land. It was like a yeah. licensed Trolls video game. Oh, and that was VAP, right? That was VAP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. But they'll be forever known among bad video game connoisseurs for the Super Monkey Daiboken game. But I want, uh, talking about Crazy Land for just a second, I had a really weird uh, design decision. I don't know if you, you've played it or have you? I've looked at it. Okay. Which game is that? Uh, Crazy Land or Trolls in Crazy Land, oh. depending on where Go you're playing it. it. Um, which is you're a kid that like kicks a soccer ball, and that's that's your attack, or you're a troll if, if you're playing the European version. Um, but... You have you can get hit like three or four times, and every time you get hit, your attack gets more awesome. So like you go from one to like two to to like two big ones, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've so never... it's kind of an interesting risk reward. Like yeah. the more the closer you get to the to dying, the more effective you are at attacking. Yes, hmm. and it, it's kind of interesting. Um, but I got really bored playing that game, and I was playing it on an emulator, and um, it was an emulator where you could. Uh, you could freeze RAM values. So I figured out the RAM values for enemy health and just froze them at zero. And I just walked through the game, and as soon as enemies spawned on screen, they exploded. Wow. It was a much better game that way. All right. So <laughs> anyway. is there anything that can make Super Monkey Die Boken a good game? I don't, I don't we know. should explain what it is first. Yeah, well, I don't really know what it is. So it's, <laughs> it's obviously a video game based on the Chinese novel Journey to the West. There's like the monkey, the turtle, those because guys. like 50% of Famicom games were based on... Sayuki. Yeah, there's there's actually multiple of like the, the the great five classical novels of China. I think all of them had been developed into Famicom games at some point. But it's almost avant-garde in its sort of lack of any kind of direction that it gives you, or even just playing it. It feels like it almost seems like some kind of like weird prank that they're playing on you. Um, <laughs> You walk around on a horse, and the first part is like just like this empty island. You just walk around until you just happen to walk into the right mountain that takes you on to the next level. Yeah, it's like it's it's not like an RPG where there's an obvious town square. It's just like arbitrarily, this mountain square happens to take you to another environment. And a Game Center CX didn't he like play that over the course of like an entire season or something? Like he, I think so. Yeah, yeah I mean, and again, that was like the the, the game that like. I think people like called in to help them play it because I mean no one – I don't know how people ever figure out how to, how to, to beat this game because there's like – Strategy some, guides existed in, in great numbers uh, for the Famicom actually. Well, yeah. yeah that, that makes sense. But if you were to play it without that kind of assistance, I mean you would just not know where to go, what to do. It's, and, it's and, a, and even when you're walking, it's like really slow. Yes, right? incredibly slow and, and, and it's so ugly. Yeah. And the, the music's, like, very grating. And, and you get in these it's random dreary. battles that make no sense at yes. all. Um, my takeaway from, uh, you know, playing it for, like, a minute but also watching your videos is, like, it seems like a game that someone designed and handed off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you, you can see a game there, right? It's right. like, all right, you're literally journeying west. You're walking west, right? And as you go, you pick up companions, just like in the story, and you get in random battles, and you go in towns where people will help you by giving you food and water. Like, mm-hmm. it, it sounds kind of cool in concept, but, yeah, like, it was not, it, it's not a well-executed game and by any stretch of the imagination. It almost feels like a non-game yeah. when you're playing it. Yeah, it, it actually does. Yeah, it's, a, it's a walking simulator. It's, <laughs> oh, a, wow. it's a modern indie game. It's one of those darn The original SJW modern indie games. Game. So yeah. ahead of its time. It should have been on the DOG label. <laughs> uh, 
All right. So, so yeah, that's VAP. And I think with that, we should take ourselves a break and let the, let the man punk get aired out of this. All right. You would have okay. had an exclusive. I know, right? <laughs> oh, I hit record too late. There was an amazing discussion about Tosa. Uh, sorry, Whoa. Tose. Whoa. Wow, it's infectious. One you of these me. days, I'm going to go to like the Tose headquarters and like ask them, what is the best way? Uh, I know the guy who ran Tose USA. It's Tose. Oh, so, but what? In, in, there is a Tose USA? Yeah. Uh, like the, like, what, I don't the, know if they're the still around, or? but uh, they were like – the American biz dev arm. Oh, okay. There's like th- two or three guys. Yeah. I mean, there being that, like, it's like a made up word in Roman characters that has a Japanese pronunciation, but who knows what the equivalent non-Japanese. Actually, I met the Japanese CEO. It's Tose. Oh, you you met him? Yeah. Okay, I'll take your word for it's it. Tose. <laughs> the nice thing about Japanese is that if if you see what it's spelled like, it's pronounced like that too. Well, like it's always consistent. Well, so yeah, vowels only have one sound in Japanese. Yeah, sort of. But then there's stuff like, you know, Super Mario where when we look at the Japanese characters, it's – it's Mario. Uh, well, like Super is like Supa. Sure, but that's an American word that they've taken and said, we got to make this work with our syllabary. Well, exactly. But when we look at something like, like Tose, who knows that it's not, not a word in any, la- any language. How is it supposed to be pronounced? I know it's Tose, tose. but <laughs> I get it, people. But I just don't understand why people sort of – Honed in of all the many horrible things in my show, I don't know why people. No, I I, I get honed it. In on the that pronunciation one. police are the worst. Mm-hmm. Like, there's someone right now who's going to bitch about something we say on this show and be like, "It's so annoying." And like, to, be, okay. to be honest, I'll start caring about my pronunciation of of Japanese words when they start pronouncing English words the way we do. Oh, you know, it's, it's a it's, challenge. It's just a cultural thing. I don't know. Anyway, so Tose. Tose. Or Tosa, if you prefer. No. Um, we have we have moved beyond the irredeemable developers onto the, the developers that are actually pretty okay. Like there were developers that emerged in the 80s in Japan. Uh, they didn't become major powerhouses. Um, you know, you had your, like I said, Capcoms and Konamis that went on to great things. Uh, but you also had a lot of companies that kind of sprung up in this time and survived for a long time and made some pretty good stuff, but never really gained name recognition. Tose, I think, uh, is maybe an exception just because they are so prolific and so widely hired that they've become pretty well known, um, even in the U.S., even though the exact extent of their work through the years uh, remains something of a mystery. Like, they won't actually say what they, – they won't put their names on things because in a lot of cases it's – Outside the bounds of their contract, they're not allowed to. Well, and it's also just like how they operate. That's how they prefer to operate. They want to be anonymous. A ninja developer, as yeah. they say. Yeah. When didn't we learn of Tose in the West? I will tell you exactly when. It was when uh, Brandon Sheffield and I interviewed them in 2006. Um, we we came across them in at, at a at a show called Game Connection. Uh, Game Connection typically happens at the same time as GDC, but they're not affiliated. And it's like speed dating hmm. for contract developers and game publishers. And uh, you get a, if, you're, if you're a developer, you get a tiny little room. And uh, you can schedule, I think it is 15-minute 
uh, sessions with publishers who have paid to be in Game Connection. And um, I was uh, working at Gama Sutra at the time. And uh, there's no one else, like, covering Game Connection because what are you going to do at Game Connection? So uh, we were just going into random rooms being like, hi, can we talk to you? Because we were just naive little, you know, journalists doing real journalism. Um, you, you have to be naive, I think, to do real journalism mm-hmm. now. And uh, we were just like, hi, we don't know who you are. Let's talk to you. And so we just sat down and interviewed him. And it's like, so how many people do you employ? And they're like, 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> when were you founded? 1979. It's like, I think it was Brandon's next question was, why haven't we heard of you? And that's when they explained the story. We're like, wow, oh. it's really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, I like Tose. I don't, I'm not going to, like, I don't think I've ever played a Tose game where I was like, wow, it's a great game. You know, but they made Rocket Slime. I didn't play Rocket Slime. Man, that game is so good. I've, I've heard that, that game got me back into Dragon Quest. I have heard that. Um, it's really good. I did just finally. play. And I really like Super Princess Peach. I haven't played that one either. I played. I played the Starfy games. Those are not. Those are great. not that good. They're like um, Kirby without any challenge. Right, but they really actually put something. their name on the Starfy. Yeah, games, right? they they are the co-owners mm-hmm. of Starfy. Yeah. I think I think because of their long-standing relationship with Nintendo, they got like help. You know, making their game. You know what I mean. So, like, yeah, they put their name on Starfy, and they're the co-owner of the IP. But Tose is like, it's one of those companies where I don't think it's you can really put a quality gauge on them because they're probably making like ten games at a time. Right. You know, it's it's. Well, I mean, with two thousand people under under their employ, that was you know ten years ago. I don't who knows. Probably bigger now. You think? I don't know. Uh, probably. Like, I'm sure they get contracted even more now. Like, middleware but, uh, and... But they're, they're also Japanese, which aren't as cheap now as, like, the Philippines or, or mm. China, you know? So, like, they I don't know how many people mm. they employ now. They might say on their website somewhere, but um, I would imagine in the Famicom days, you know, they were probably more prolific than Rare. You know, mm-hmm. so oh, prob- by far. Yeah, yeah, so they probably had multiple teams making multiple games at any given time. So I don't think there is, like, a Tose to look at. But, um, you know, like, all of their games, not all maybe, but they, they probably had some stinkers. But all of them are, like, they, I mean, they, they did Cherub. Yeah. They did Cherub. Okay, fine. But they're, they're all, like, competent, and, and they just feel like they're to spec. You know what I mean? It's just, like... The quality is variable it right. is. by a lot. Yeah, well, money is variable. Yeah, I feel like Tosei is kind of your, I mean, they are sort of the archetypal outsourcing studio. Like, you put them on a project, and depending on the oversight you give them and the budget you give them and the time Mm -hmm. you give them, you're going to get back an equivalent product. Um, They've done a lot of stuff for Square Enix, uh, like a a lot of um, ports of their older games that are actually really good. Like, they were responsible for Chrono Trigger DS, which is... The new material that they added wasn't that great, but but the port itself. That? What's that? But did Tosa I don't know. That? I don't know who yeah. did. Uh, but like the the port itself is just impeccable. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, they did World of Final Fantasy, like something. I don't know exactly what they did on World of Final Fantasy, but that game's really good too. So they they do some good stuff, and it really does depend on. I think who they're working for and kind of the the scope of the project. Well, and and I don't know if this is always true, but I it just feels like it always was. I I know more than one person who has worked with them, you know, externally, um, and like they're great if you give them very specific direction. You know what I mean? Like like it it just seems like if you, if you let them go off on their own, they're maybe not going to deliver exactly. They'll give what you, you a starfy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But it, but if you are actually like supervising their day to day, you're going to get something good because they're 
they're competent and they're good at their jobs. They're just work for higher, you know, mechanics that put games together. Yeah, in a lot of ways, they I, I feel like they kind of beat everyone else to the punch. I mean, that's probably why they became so big. Like you said, they were established in 1979. Yeah. God, so, what were they doing back then? I have no like, idea. Uh, they must have been doing stuff for arcade games. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. 79 was a couple of years after Space Invaders, or like a year after Space Invaders. You should have asked them. Well, I did, and they won't. They won't say it, but it had to be, they had to be doing arcade stuff and maybe some early PC ports, but yeah, like the, the, you know, the Japanese home games market didn't really take off until 1984. Or they were just software engineers, maybe not doing games. I don't know. Hmm? That's possible too. Possible. But uh, like, so what NES stuff did they do? I didn't, I don't really have a list. Well, they did a lot. I mean, one thing about Tose is the fact they turn out so much stuff. And the, the the range and quality is extremely broad. And, I mean, it, it seems like I, I get at least one Toze game an episode. With those I, guys. That seems right. They're yeah. they're kind of like that's another reason it comes up so often. Is yeah, because once per Crontendo, at least we hear Toza. Sometimes two, three yeah. times per episode. <laughs> they're, they're they're much like the the rare of mm-hmm. Japan in the sense that like every other U.S. game was yep. developed by Rare. Mm-hmm. Toza just comes up over and over and over again for you did it all all kinds of publishers. Um, but I, I guess they're, they're sort of special place in history. The, the very first Japanese publisher for the Famicom that was not connected to gaming was Bandai. They were a toy company. I mean, mm-hmm. before then, they were like Namco, Hudson, a few Japanese companies that worked on computer games. But yeah, Band- and they were actually the first American licensee also. They Yeah, them and Capcom and – no, Chubby K- Cherub and K- Konami um, all came around. Oh, Data East. Chubby Chubby Cherub and Tag Team Wrestling yes, were the first yes. Western third-party games for NES. And those came out around the same time in Japan in late nineteen eighty-five, late eighty-five, and late eighty-six here. But yeah, Bandai was the first company that had no history with things like computers, video games, that sort of thing. They were, and it makes sense, of course, they went with a third-party developer because they had no mm-hmm. development team. They were simply a publisher who took their properties and turned them out into video games. So they're very much sort of like the the earliest versions of like these, these Kim Kardashian games where you have a property you want to exploit and you need a middleman to actually turn it into a game. Yeah, and the, the, those first games that came to the U.S. from Bandai were, uh, like I said, Chubby Cherub, which is based on an anime in Japan. They changed, they scrubbed the license off. It was, I think, Gegege no Kitaro. Um, and then Muscle, which was yes. you know, the, the little Man, action yeah. figures, Kinikuman, yeah. Uh, I don't God think Tag Team damn. Wrestling was based on anything, but, you know, it's two out of three. Yeah. So right there, you've got the licenses. So that was kind of like the, almost like the turning point in sort of the history of the Famicom was Bandic came in, and then in 86, everyone else came in. And the first Tose game that I definitely encountered, sorry, 87, sort of when everyone started coming in. Um, the first Tosa game that I encountered was Kanikuman and Chubby Cherub, which came out right around the same time. And Kanikuman, it, it seemed like it was maybe not the worst game I had encountered, but it was the first game that seemed like it was kind of very hastily developed. Mm. It feels very unfinished. Yes. It, it seemed like there were weird games and games that didn't quite work, but this is the first game that kind of felt like a shovelware game on the Famicom. And I think that's part of the reason why I dislike that particular company is because their stuff, it's competently made shovelware, which occasionally sort of goes in a little bit further and actually becomes good. But no, I think I think Tose works in a much broader spectrum than that. Yes, they do the shovelware for mm-hmm. publishers like Bandai 
and Von Presto and Takara and Tomi that are just like, just take this property and, cr- you know, just get some crap out the door. That's fine. Here's 10 bucks. Um, but, you know, for, for developers who need, you know, assistance with their development uh, and need that extra helping hand but still care about the products they create, Tose comes in and, and helps out and, you know, gets the, gets the job done and can do some really good work. Oh, yeah, like Frank they, said, like the, the more hand-holding they have, the better they do. And they definitely improved over time. I mean, as, as Famicom games in general got better, they got better. So I don't think they're a terrible developer. And they definitely put out some good stuff. But at least at first, they were sort of like the first kind of sh- shock of the, of, of the terrible <laughs> games coming in. Mm-hmm. They were like the first wave. They were like mm-hmm. the shock troops. Here comes the boom. I mean, they were the yeah, they were the shockwave of the Famicom boom. Sort of give you like numbers here. In uh, nineteen eighty five, there were sixty nine Famicom games. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then in eighty six, we had a little bit over a hundred. And then in eighty seven, total of including Famicom Disk System games, two hundred and six games. And then it dropped in eighty eight to one hundred and ninety six. So eighty seven okay, yeah. and eighty eight were like the peak years when. Just as like this tidal wave of product coming out at just amazing speed. Jeremy's making a shoveling motion, shoveling and a, coal. And a lot of that was FDS. There were <laughs> shoveling something. Sixty-eight <laughs> FDS games in 1987, which is a lot because I mean the system was still relatively new, and that that's pretty much when it peaked. But just so many off the wall. I mean, like you had like book companies, like textbook companies, record companies. Suddenly, everyone was making a Famicom game at that time. That was that was sort of like the boom was end of 86, beginning of 87 was when it all started. And Toze was, of course, right there at the very beginning. Mm. And it was nice, I imagine, for American publishers because, you know, this is like exactly when the NES is starting to boom mm-hmm. too. And it's like, okay, which of these 300 games should we try to yeah, license? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, even at the beginning in 1985, Nintendo had something like 80 games to choose from. Yeah. And it, it picked out 15 of those or 16 of those were like, these are the games we're going to start with. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I think Tosei is one of those companies that, like, I don't know that I don't. I don't think that they were even trying to be consistent in quality. You know, it's it's like it was, it was, they were a contract publisher. They're, they're, they're just a contract. A yeah, exactly. So it's it's one of those companies that I, don't, I just I, I I don't know. I might sound defensive, but I just don't feel right. You know, trying to define Tosei as 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 a developer because it's. Like they'll they'll make whatever you pay them to make. Frank is definitely playing the good cop in this episode. <laughs> Frank has shipped games. <laughs> he sees it from the other just end. Assholes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we we tend to think of like games as art, and of course, it's it's more accurate, I guess, to think of them as a a consumer product yeah. that was created and, and put out and designed for business decisions, not for artistic decisions. I'm not saying you know games can't be art or whatever, but that's really not. What most of these things were, it was except, there except was walking simulators like a week of Garfield. There you right. go. That's yeah, that's art. Those are art. <laughs> but there's a lot of craft. I mean, like obviously there's a lot of passion and craft put into something like Super Mario Brothers, and a lot of these contract companies didn't have that because they were simply cashing a check. Right, and and, and they also probably weren't even getting royalties or anything. You know, why would right. you put extra effort into making something long lasting when you have to get to the next project? Just like the typical stream of like direct-to-video movies, I mean, of course, most of them aren't very good, but that's because they don't really have to be. Right. All they have to do is exist. I don't know. Land Before Time Eight, I think, was uh, kind of the pinnacle. Pinnacle something. <laughs>
Tose is definitely like sort of the big example of, of companies that no one ever heard of who were nevertheless making a ton of games. Um, but you know, if you look at the, the sort of like top tier of these, these sort of Famicom boom era companies, some of them were actually pretty good. Like uh, Imagineer kind of ties into what I was talking about earlier with Battle of Olympus and Infinity. Like they started out a little rough. You know, they did those Wavejack games and mm, I don't know. But um, after a few years, um, Infinity's lead uh, company president, uh, Horimoto, uh, saw Populous in a in a like a games magazine from the West. He was like flipping through you know import magazines in Akihabara and was like, "This game looks really cool. I want to bring this to Japan." So he got the okay to localize Populous for some Japanese system. I don't remember which one, and um, like that became Imagineers or yeah Imagineers business. Like they became a company that specialized in ports of Western PC games to Japanese systems. And they made a pretty good business of it up until like the, you know, the, the 32-bit era where suddenly the need for that sort of disappeared uh, because Japanese indigenous PCs sort of went away and were replaced by, you know, Windows systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, up through the, the mid-90s, they were porting stuff like Doom and North and South and Powermonger and things like that. Uh, so, you know, they, they found a niche and, uh, they did a pretty good job with it until that niche disappeared. Um, another, there's, there's some interesting companies in here like Sofell. Uh, Sofell's weird. They, they made nothing but weird things. One of those weird things is the current bane of my existence, Fish Dude for Game Boy, (laughs) which I have borrowed a copy of the game in the manual, but as far as I know, the box doesn't actually exist. Oh, for Fish Dude, yeah. Somewhere out there, but like no one I've talked to who collects Game Boy stuff, people who have near-complete collections, they're like, no, I've never seen the box for that game. Hmm. Yeah, it, it does exist. It's somewhere out there. No, like uh, Dane Anderson at Nintendo Age. No, I, I know, yeah, I know right, some people right, have right, it, right. but like for all intents and purposes, it's not something that goes up for auction. Yeah. And why would it? Like, who would have bought that game back in the day? Yeah, it's I know, called I no Fish idea. Dude. It has really kind of gross box art, like just ugly. And what is the game? No one even knows until you play it. Like, it's not a compelling sale. Well, and yet, obviously, uh, whatever allocation existed sold because you can't find them. But how, what was the allocation? Was it like 20 copies? <laughs> it might have been. Knows? Maybe yes. they were buried in the desert. <laughs> but, so, so SoFL stands for Software Engineering Laboratory. Apparently. I see. I thought it was, it was Software Elves. Software Elves. And, and they, they did a... Uh, Several like financial themed games. Mm-hmm. Um, one where you sort of like try to make money in the stock market. They did Casino Kid mm-hmm. and a sequel. Yeah, I think there may have been a Japanese only sequel to Money Game as well. I'm not sure. I haven't gotten that far yet. I, I try not to think about the games that I have yet to play. I understand. They sure. uh, they almost published. Uh, well, they did for the Super Nintendo happily ever after. The uh, the speaking of direct to video. Um, the the unofficial Snow White sequel. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, oh yeah. I think I think I you mentioned that at some point. Yeah. You... Well, it, like a ROM came out. Yeah, online. ROM. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Earlier this year, it was uh, Atlas actually made it. Um, but uh, that was so fell. That was a, it's a very weird hard game. And then Kokona World, which is one of those bizarre, baffling Japanese games that you encounter and just you just don't know what to make of it. Mm. I don't remember that one. What was that one? I don't either, and I like watched a video of it and put a link in the <laughs> notes. But like, I'm I remember thinking, well, this is weird. 
You're like yeah, like a girl walking around like in like a fairy tale town, um, collecting objects. I remember this now. And uh, again, it would I'm sure make sense if you had the the Japanese novel, but uh, or Japanese uh, manual. But these games, I mean, this is before they had all these in-game tutorials that walked you through everything. So you you just encounter these things with no manual, and you have no idea how to play them. I'm sure it's a might be a great game. I think it's a lot deeper than it, it really appears to be at first glance. Mm-hmm. But it does just seem kind of kind of a little bizarre. Is that any relation to the magical world of Ginny? It's called the magic word of Ginny. Oh, magic word on the title right. screen. And I think it's called the magical world on the box art. It was some kind of disconnect. And and Ginny was the Japanese Barbie. Oh. They actually licensed Barbie from Mattel, and then they lost the license, so they changed her name to Ginny. And it, it, again, it, it's it's a bizarre little game in which dogs. When you're on the overworld, dogs always try to attack you for mm, some reason. They hate her. Dogs yeah. I, I just tried to play this recently. Yeah, the dogs cannot stand Jenny. And she has like this crazy high kick, right. like a, like a like a rockette dancer. Well, or something. Yeah, I mean that's. That's Barbie right there. Well, sure, yeah. Can her can her knee hyperextend forward like a real Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, it's one of those games that just feels so janky when you try to play it that it it makes you not want to play it. Mm. There are a lot of those on the list that I put together. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think probably the hardest part for any developer was probably just like mechanics, mm-hmm. um, jumping mechanics, physics. That kind yeah, of thing. yeah, because. So many of these early Famicom games suffer from really bad jumps. I, I, jumping is probably the, the number one thing. That's yeah. something no one got right until Super Mario Brothers. And, and even then it took it took like a year or two for other developers to be like, okay, now we get it. Yeah. And even after that, a lot of them were still never. like, some, some never did. Yes, yeah. you still get like these super high jumps, these weird floaty jumps, or like when you have like there's like no friction on whatever mm-hmm. you're landing on, you slide. Um, Bad jumping was like the bane of of this whole Famicom boom of terrible games. Nintendo really needed to just release a jumping uh, <laughs> API, like just a, a single API for Famicom. Like here's how you jump. There you go. One of my my worst, most hated games, which we didn't discuss, is a uh, Bats and Terry or, or Batsu and Terry. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried to play that mm-hmm. or seen it. Is, is it is the on one the list where you're though. like like uh, throwing or diagonally a ball? You have, you have, yeah, you throw yeah. a baseball, and the yeah. other guy has a bat. Yeah. Um, the one thing I've seen in that game that I've never seen in any other game is when you kill an enemy, like a little explosion appears. Yeah. But as you move, the explosion moves with you, so it doesn't stay in place. I, I guess it's, it was it's a, on the background layer. Yeah. So it was like it was like a technical problem they they couldn't seem to resolve. I guess the, the whole thing is just like. So it, it, Looks like Super Mario Brothers. I think I described it as being looking like Super Mario Brothers, like the industrial neighborhood. Yeah. It's like all like these barbed wire fences and like concrete blocks and like warehouses and stuff. And then you go into hell. It's based on like a yeah like a, a manga about baseball players and biker gangs. The whole thing is just so bizarre. But but the game itself is one of the most technically messed up games I think I played. But yet it's 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 the kind of bad game I like to play because it's not. It's not all that unfair. It's just awful. It's not boring in right. the sense it's, it's, that it surprises exactly. you with its its weirdness. Yeah, and it's like you can play it and not get bored or frustrated. It's just bad. And 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 I, I kind of like games like that. I, I consider a week of Garfield uh, in that same category. Like I can play a week of Garfield. I'd rather play a week of Garfield than many games. Mm-hmm. But it's not good. 
it's very bad. They have more appeal to us than, say, the typical Mahjong game. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, weeks were like a, an interesting theme in uh, in these, these oddball games. There's Linar, uh, a company that was apparently a spinoff of a, another company called Astral Corporation. Hmm. They made it, they, they made, did. They made uh, weird, interesting, uneven games, not necessarily bad games, just weird ones, but their first kind of like, the first, I think, that people stumble across while poking around in NES ROMs is Bird Week, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, supposed to be like a life sim. Like you are living the life of a mama bird mm-hmm. feeding worms to your babies. Yes. Protecting the um, the the chicks mm-hmm. from – there's also like predators of some sort. I think you need – it's been so long since I played that so game. Like, there's like bad birds. It's kind of like – a bird meets choplifter meets base right yeah, yeah maybe, maybe so and again one of those games when you when you load up it seemed so different than anything else you'd seen on the Famicom at that time yeah and the, probably the most famous game is Deadly, Deadly Towers, Towers and which really means well like it's ambitious it's incredibly ambitious it's yeah. you know it's it's in that that Tower of Duraga vein you know sort of derived from Falcom's Dragon Slayer and right and one of those like games that. that like no one in the right mind should ever try to pick up now, but mm-hmm. but like as an historical relic, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, even at the time, yeah, I had a friend who bought that and was like, "Oh, this game is terrible, and I hate this." But it's still there's something about it. Like it has, it's it's not well made. It's not really well designed, but it does have a coherence about it, mm-hmm. and that's something that I respect in games. Is like. There is a vision to it. There is like a world and it has a structure and maybe it's not fun to play and maybe it's not fair and maybe it just hates you, but there's something happening there. It kind of resembles Zelda in the sense that it does have something like a coherent world. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're exploring this this fantasy Tower, world. Like towers full what, of bells. Exactly, yeah. And when I looked at it for the first time, in relationship to like the stuff that came out like around the same time, it really did seem insanely ambitious. It mm-hmm. didn't really, you know, it, it's it's uh, grasp exceeded its reach or whatever. But um, I wouldn't call it necessarily like a bad game. Didn't Sean maybe like really really hate that game? Probably, and a lot of ideas and opinions about NES games that people haven't really played have been picked up passively from Sean Baby or the Angry Video Game Nerd. He was he was the YouTuber of his time. He was. Mm-hmm. But actually, yeah, trying to play it, I mean, it's not fun to play, that's for sure. Yeah. But it seems like... And the sprite like, is very ugly, I yes. think. Yeah. But there's like, there's and something there. you have no there. confidence in your sword. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely something there. And it's like, there's there's a lot of heart in that game. There's a lot of unnecessary polish. Like, mm-hmm. like when you, I don't know, what do you do, light a fire or something? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's it's a, a little bit Dark Souls? Yeah. There, well, <laughs> you know, there's like a cool effect to it with the screen flashing and the music playing and stuff. You know, like like they there there's a lot of polish to that game. There's a lot of heart and ambition mm-hmm. to it. Uh, it's just kind of janky now. Yeah, it was good enough that Broderbund localized it. They yeah. tried to bring it to America under the name Hell's Bells, but Nintendo was like, no. Was that true? Yeah. Wow. The Japanese title is Masho, which means like evil bell. So they were like, let's be literal. And Nintendo was like, hell in a game? <laughs> I don't think so. So well, we got ACDC on the hook. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I'll confess, I, I just played a Lenar game for the last episode. Which was And I what? can't remember what it was. Was it Image Fight? No, no. It Napoleon was, Senki? It was something. I, no, it wasn't either of those. Now, Napoleon Senki was like a really 
early strategy game mm-hmm. yeah. on the NES. The um, Broderbund uh, actually announced here as oh. uh, Battlefield of Napoleon, but uh, did not ship. Strategy we did eventually get Napoleon from Koei, though. Yes. Yeah, different, different game. Yeah. Strategy games are one of those games that once you've played like the kind that we have now, it's really, really, really hard to go back yeah. to what they were in the, the 80s and early 90s. I agree with that. But but Lenar is one of those companies that started out rough but with some ideas, and they kept getting better. Uh, I mentioned in, in passing uh, Mercenary Force earlier, which is this crazy Game Boy shooter that takes place in medieval Japan, and you like put together a party of people from different classes, and you advance like in formation, and you can change up your formation. It's really interesting. You have to like collect money from fallen enemies so that you can hire new recruits to replace the people who you lose along the way. That's that's it's weird, but it's good. It's it's difficult, but it's good. And then eventually they made Gunman's Proof, which is a pretty cool old west super Famicom RPG shooter kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of these guys got better over time, and a lot of them sort of dropped out, and we never heard from them again. Yeah, then you have you know like a company like Victor Interactive, which was another one of those uh, spinoffs of a music publishing company. This was part of JVC, and uh, they started out with. A very kind of meh, um, puzzle action game called Banana. I, I love the which, logo, which on looks that very game. like Boulder Dash meets I don't know Boulder Dash. You're a, you're like a mole, like I guess those are bananas that you're picking up in the in the ground. I guess. They look like yams or something. Yeah, but it has a really great sort of '80s like giant banana logo with like little mm-hmm. moles. I, I think that's the most charming thing, right. thing about the game. I mean, the game itself actually looks like a PC game circa 1981. It's it's very ugly and dated, but you know, eventually they started doing ports of Western games, like you know, uh, Lucas Arts games, like Loon, uh, 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 Soul Scum games, mm-hmm. both of them. Prince yeah. of Persia. They they published Tomb Raider. They made original titles like KO Yugi Gitai, the or KO Flying Squadron, the the crazy like ac- anachronistic ancient Japan shooter where you play as a girl in like a Playboy bunny leotard. It's weird, but it's good. They one of the games I like the least from them is probably uh, one called Hana no Star Kaidu. It's a game where you play as a musical duo. Like two two male oh, Japanese right. pop singers, and it's yeah. do you remember like Mickey Mouse Capade where you and mm-hmm. Minnie were like kind of connected together? Mm-hmm. It's the same idea. You two always like jump in unison, mm-hmm. and of course, like one guy can fall off a platform mm-hmm. and land on, and you're just like one guy stuck at the, stuck at the top, one guy stuck at the bottom. You have to sort of get them back together. It's an incredibly annoying game, um, and again, it has like that that weird lack of logic that we tend to dislike in video games. Like, why are random pedestrians trying to kill you? Um, why do you whip out like a microphone and shoot them with like a musical note? I, I, it, it makes sense, but if you were a Japanese pop star trying to conquer the world, why would you be murdering people in your path to do so? I mean, so? that's what Gact does. Gact? Is that the, the lizard? <laughs> that's, Gak, that's that's Gex. Oh, oh, oh the, right, the singer. He's from <laughs> yeah, yes, the singer. I know be the first no- person that's ever confused Gact with Gex. I know nothing <laughs> about J-pop, so you could. Name me any number of J-pop art. He's like, he's like the guy who like wears the, the the makeup and stuff. Yeah, yeah, one of many. Yes, is that what what do they call that genre? Um, um, glam. I don't know what is that called. There's a Japanese term for it. Yeah, I used to know, but I don't care. All right. 
Sorry, I've I've studiously avoided all of that kind of stuff. Crystal Dynamics created both of them, so I could see the Care about that? I just like don't worry about it. Just the confusing anything with gags. No, but I remember like people like talking about him on Twitter and stuff occasionally. He shows up a lot in Final Fantasy games for some reason. Really? Like Crisis Core, Dirge of Cerberus. Hmm. He was like, yeah, he was like Final Fantasy Dirge of Cerberus. He was in that game, and there was another character in Crisis Core that was modeled after him. It's bizarre. I think Tetsuya Nomura was obsessed with him or something. Hmm. I don't know. On a related note, JVC was, among other things, noted for the very high quality of its vinyl. They had some kind of special vinyl, vinyl formulation, which is one of the reasons why Japanese records are so prized and expensive, mm. was because of their high quality vinyl until they stopped having to make it because it gave workers cancer. Worth it. Well, that's a happy story. There you go. <laughs> so we need to wrap this up. Um, I need to kind of bring this to a close. It's almost two hours long now. Oh, okay. Well, um, it can be edited down, right? But it's such a great conversation. Why would we do that? Um, I just wanted to touch one last uh, developer, Hecht, oh. who um, never had a hit, really. Uh, they worked on City Connection for Jalico, but they're they're kind of a great example of a developer that started out sort of, uh, why would you play these games, but eventually made some kind of cool stuff. Um, they started out, actually in the arcades, they made a game called Formation Z, which is mm-hmm. a shooter, kind of a transforming mags, magmax kind of thing. And there's a crappy Famicom port that they did. And you wouldn't think, oh, these, this is going to be a company that goes someplace. But their last Famicom game was called Moon Crystal, which was a very late release that only came out in Japan and is a really good sort of action, brawly kind of, you know, adventure game. A little bit sort of nonlinear and has probably the best animation ever seen on Famicom in any action game. It's just a gorgeous-looking game. And, like, that's from the same people that made Formation Z, or at least the same same company. I don't know what kind of continuity there was with staff, but it just goes to show that you, you, anyone can succeed. It's another game that we almost got here, too. Like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. DTMC was going to publish it, and there's screenshots in English. Hmm. Like, it what, exists. What did DTMC even publish? I know NTV, I see, or whatever it's called. Uh, they they did Isolated Warrior and a few other games. But I cannot remember. Yeah. I'm going to look it up while you I don't even know that time. publisher. And, and of course, they also did that uh, that U.S. presidential election game. Right. Bringing it back into the present day. Yes. Very relevant, very timely With, for this uh, recording session. Margaret Thatcher being mm-hmm. one of the candidates for U.S. president. Oh, yes. The... Um, the go back to England party. Exactly. The <laughs> the opposite of Brexit, basically. And as someone pointed out, the, the music is actually lifted from Enola Gay by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. They actually stole their that particular main theme from that song wholesale and put it into the game, like on the menu. It's a weird choice. Yeah. That's a really weird choice. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a like the subtext of that is really weird. Even weirder than nineteen forty three.
ETMC was the publisher of Lester the Unlikely for the Super Nintendo. There you go. Uh, but uh, for Game Boy purposes, uh, Square Deal and Laszlo's Leap. Oh, hey, I have a copy of Square Deal. Yeah. I haven't played it yet. Not really looking forward to it. Also almost a Nintendo NES game mm. in America. Um, I'm, I, I started what might be a book on the unreleased American okay. games, and I've, I've been looking at them way too much. Lately. That's great. So Please that's, publish this book because I want to read it. My mind. Okay. Uh, anyway, so we've talked a lot about stuff and just kind of gone around in circles and rambled a lot, and I think that's probably what people like in Retronauts. So Retronauts! Well done, well done us. <laughs> Retronauts. It, it has no point. Um, but thank you both for taking the time to come here, especially you, Dr. Sparkle, who drove many miles. Well, from and had Sacramento. Well, I drove from miles. Oakland. <laughs> right. So. That's, and you had to come to the sweltering heat of San Francisco. Yeah, it's weird as people who live here know, we San, Sacramento, uh, San Francisco always has the exact opposite weather of everything around it. Mm-hmm. That's true. So yes, thanks. Um, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet, Doctor Sparkle? Well, you can find my uh, YouTube channel, Crontendo. Uh, you can find my me on Twitter, which is at uh, Crontendo, I believe. I hope. I think that that sounds I, right. Yeah. yeah. And I even have a long defunct blog spot. Do you not post on that? I thought you posted I, every content. Yeah, I, I, I do, but um, I, I used to post a lot more frequently on it. That's true. You would do like little mini updates. Yeah, talk about beer and stuff too. Yeah. yeah. I had to take that, that, that torch up and start talking about gin on my blog. There you go. Because you stopped. Yeah, the beer project I was working on ended up getting uh, canceled because suddenly I couldn't find that kind of beer anymore. Oh. Really? I didn't know that. The challenge of the microbrews. There you go. Uh, so I am uh, on Twitter at, at Frank Cifaldi. Um, that's C-I-F-A-L-D-I. Um, Cifaldi. Well, yeah, in, 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 in Italiano, it's Cifaldi. Um, but Franco Cifaldi, but uh, here I am, Frank Cifaldi. Um, so you find me there, and then uh, I, got, I got a little something I'm working on at uh, gamehistory.org, which we talked about in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably like January fifth-ish is when that should actually be a thing. That's pretty specific. Yeah. Well, just in time for the Switch launch. What, do you, what do you have to tell us? <laughs> but, sorry, what? I said that's just in time for the Switch reveal. What do you have to tell us about? <laughs> it's coming exclusively to the Switch. Yes. My entire website. It's you are a virtual a console. App. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go go look at that. And uh, I'm, re- I'm real scared. I've never started a company before. It sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's awful. Um, and then me, I'm Jeremy Parrish. You know where to find me per usual um, here on this podcast. On Twitter is GameSpite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, Bob Mackey would normally be here if he weren't coughing someplace and sleeping. Um, so check him out at, <laughs> at Bob coughing Servo. and sleeping. <laughs> Bob Servo um, on Twitter. And of course, we're here as Retronauts.com on Twitter, Tumblr, Tinder, et cetera. So thanks, everyone, for watching. Please support Retronauts on Patreon so we can keep making podcasts where we talk for two hours aimlessly about old video games because that's what we love doing and you love hearing. So we'll be back next week with a micro episode and in two weeks with a not micro episode.